Let's take your Bibles, if you will, and a little, little change of things here. We're going to go to the book of Genesis this morning. Book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2. And if you want to get ahead of the game, uh, ahead of uh, just you ain't got to do a lot of turning because we're going to we're going to do some turning today. Go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 10 and Galatians 4. And just mark those. But we'll be mostly in Genesis chapter 2. This is the first time in a long time that I've preached a topical message. This is I usually go verse by verse or, or something along those uh, those lines there. But I just want to start by saying or asking this question, rather, isn't it good to be in the house of the Lord? Isn't it good to be in the house of the Lord? You know, he's given us so much to be thankful for, given us so much. So, again, take your Bibles and go to Genesis 2 and chapter 3. They're right next to each other. Uh, you know, without, while our memory verse for December, uh, y'all seen it, just gone through the slides here. I think it's the next slide, actually. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Glory to God. Glory to God in the highest. I don't know if you noticed or not, but that's a picture of Mount Everest. That's the highest place on this planet. Glory to God in the highest. And we can glor glorify him even higher than that. Around the throne, the angels sing day and night, 24-7, even though they don't, they're outside of time. But all the time, they're bringing glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, good will toward men. But it's also true that many men today don't have peace. They don't have peace. One Five minute clip of the news will tell you that there's not a whole lot of peace in this world. Uh, maybe there's not peace in our in our workplace or maybe even not even a home sometimes. And as we move a little closer to Christmas and our celebration of the birth of Christ, I have to be honest with you this morning. I have pondered and prayed much about what we need for this season. I've pondered and prayed much about what I need, what message I need for this season. For this week. For this time, for this moment right now. And I meditated on the Bible during this week. And I, I surrounded uh, myself with the Christmas passages there in Luke chapter 1 and 2 and Matthew and even John and many other places. You know, Isaiah 7.14 and Micah 5.2 and Malachi and on and on and on about Christ and the passages and the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I sought long for a message. No peace. No liberty. In fact, I didn't have peace about what to preach until last night and then confirmed this morning. It's been a long week and I want to follow the Lord. And that's why I, it took me so long to get that. Now, that's, none of this is certainly not the Lord's fault. It has everything to do with my walk with the Lord. And, and I don't want to say there's not anything to preach from Luke chapter one and chapter two. There's plenty. There's plenty to teach from Luke 1 and 2, but I did not get peace from those passages. And I want to say that as we get closer to Christmas, we'll probably get into those passages. I'm, I'm confident of it. But regardless of where we're at, it doesn't matter if we're Christmas or New Year's or whatever time of season we are in this life. There's truly one constant need that we that we have. There's one constant need for every single person on this planet. Every person. We, of course, as Christians, know this need as the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our need. We need Him. We need Him. We need His redemption. We need deliverance. We need salvation. We need 
Jesus Christ. And while God has provided all that we'll ever need in Jesus Christ, and He has even given us the ability to call out to Him, but we must in fact do so. We must in fact call out to the Lord Jesus Christ. Even as Christians, as believers, we still need Him. In fact, we probably recognize that need more than others, more than we did when we didn't have Him. We need the Lord Jesus Christ. We need Him greatly. And as we, as you and I, move towards this Christmas season, as we celebrate the birth of Christ, we must not forget that He is the reason for life. He is the reason for life. I guess what I'm trying to convey this morning in, in this kind of long introduction is that while we celebrate the birth of Christ this December, we must also, of a necessity, celebrate the death of Christ. We must celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Because if we only celebrate Christmas and we don't get a hold of those other things and we don't believe that he was born to die, then Christmas doesn't mean anything. It really has no meaning. It's just the commercials. It's just the lights. It's just the presents. It's just nothing. Without the cross, Christmas doesn't mean anything. So in a very direct and simple message this morning, in a very direct and simple approach, I want to talk to you about what makes Christmas special. I want to talk to you about the best promise ever given. The best promise, the best gift, the best message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look right there in verse number 15 of Genesis chapter 3. The Bible says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman... That's hostility between thee and the woman. He's talking to the serpent. And between thy seed and her seed. And it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This promised seed from the book of beginnings, near the beginning of all of creation, this promised seed is, in fact, the Lord Jesus Christ. And his gospel is clearly all throughout the Bible, but in, in, in one short form, I want you to see. So that's the title of this morning's message is The Best Promise. But I want you to look at the screen here. It says, Moreover, brethren, this is 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. If ye ever looking for what the Bible says, what the gospel message is, Look no other place but here first. It's many other places, but this is as clear as it gets. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. This is the gospel message, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Without the gospel, Christmas is just nothing. It's Humanism with a religious facade. This is the gospel message. And for those who maybe, maybe were thinking we've been saved for a while and we don't need to hear a gospel message. And I'm not going to lie to you. That, that thought crosses my mind as I preach a gospel message. I wonder how the believers will take it. And then I'm reminded the Lord says, and if I can put words in his mouth and, and, and how the Holy Spirit speaks to me, who cares? Be obedient to me. Be obedient to me. Paul wrote that the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. 
the power of God. We want power in our lives. Yes, the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. In other words, the cross is nonsense to the world, but unto us who believe, it's power. Power. Not just any power, but God's power. And the word used for power there uh, in the Greek there in 1 Corinthians is just what it means. It means power. It's where we get the word dynamite in the English language. There is power in the preaching of the cross. Paul said, I have done nothing else but preach the cross. Without wisdom of words, without fanciness, and now all these things. The simple, non-watered down, basic truths of the gospel message. The death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior. And with that said, this morning's message, again, is simply and clearly about our need for the gospel. It's about our need for the best promise ever told to man. And it begins right here in the book of Genesis. With respect to humanity, with respect to us, it begins, unfortunately, with our sin. With our sin. Look at verse chapter. I know it says 3, 6 up there, but look at Genesis 2, verses 16. And 17. Genesis chapter 2, 16. The Bible says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Then look at verse 6 of chapter 3. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took up the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Before we go any further, let's, let's invite the Lord here among us. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much, Lord, for this message. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the, the clarity of the gospel. We thank you for the reality of the gospel. We thank you for the simplicity of the gospel message. Lord, even a child can understand these things. And Lord, and the older we get, uh, the more wise we get in our own, in our own wisdom, in our own uh, flesh, Lord, it gets more difficult to see the simplicity. We want the big answers. We want the, the in-depth messages. We want all these things, Lord. But at the end of the day, Lord, we just need the gospel. We need you, Lord. We need simplicity in our lives. Lord, there's so many complicated things in this life, Lord. I'm so thankful that your gospel is not one of them. Lord, we invite you here among us to this morning. Lord, meet with us. Bless us. And Lord, and we thank you for the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we see the command here, and then we see them failing to meet that command. And one may wonder, as we read through this, why God even placed a tree in the garden in the first place. Ever thought about that? Of course, we, we might have thought of it that one time. And his thoughts are, are clearly higher and, and, uh, and better than ours. And he, goes, and he does as he pleases. But I think the simple answer to why he put the tree in there is that God loves man with an agape love. And he greatly desires man to love him. He greatly desires man to love him. And while God commands and demands that his creation brings him glory, true love requires volition. True love requires a choice. You know, based on God's attributes, God chooses to love us. Praise God, God chooses to love us. For God commendeth His love toward us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's all based on His love. We spent a whole month talking about the love of God last month. So based on God's attribute, God chooses to love us, and 
based on our attributes, we choose to love Him or not love Him. You know, as we studied 1 John, we've learned, I hope, or maybe even, even been reminded, that love has a hard connection to obedience. You cannot separate love and obedience. It is together. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, Jesus' words here, if you love me, keep my commandments. They are on, uh, they are connected, they are a hinge. The Bible even states in 1 John 5, 3, that loving God is equal, it's, to, it's synonymous with keeping His commandments. And His commandments are not grievous. So in context, back in our narrative here in Genesis, the command to obey, that option, the tree of life, of good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil, it was crucial for man to love God. It had to be there. God had to give man the option to love God or to not love God. The response of Adam and Eve to this choice is recorded again right there in verse 6. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. They disobeyed. Was that an act of love? It was not. It was not. Adam's willful act of disobedience, in his willful act of disobedience, he chose to love God. To say that he made the wrong choice is an understatement, but it's still true. You, say, you could say that he chose himself over the sovereign God. I don't think you'd be wrong. And today, before we just throw Adam under the bus, so to speak, we, humanity, still chooses self over God. We still choose self. We choose sin. We choose society. We choose even Satan over the Savior. We're no different than Adam. We're actually worse off than Adam without Christ. But as we see here in the text, with Adam's choice came sin. Referring to Adam, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, he says, By one man sin entered into the world. By one man. By one man. Sin did not enter in the world through Eve. It entered in the world through Adam. That lot falls on his shoulders. God put him in charge of the planet. God gave him the deed to creation, and he forfeited that deed. By one man sin entered into the world. To sin means to miss the mark. Imagine playing darts. If they had a dart board there in the Garden of Eden, which I highly doubt, and Adam was just every day, man, without, it can't miss. And then he chose to miss, and now he can never hit the bullseye again. That's sin. We can never hit the bullseye again, ever. It means to miss the mark. And because sin entered the world through Adam, you and I not only choose to sin, we inherit that sin. It runs through our veins. It courses through us. We have sin. We are born in sin. David says, in iniquity did my mother conceive me. Paul also wrote that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Even them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. So even though we didn't commit the same sin Adam sinned, God says, it don't matter. Sin is sin. And all sin. Every sin separates us from God. He is a perfect God. And for him to allow sin into his presence would take away of his holiness. And that's not going to happen. God is a perfect, sinless God. And friends, you and I are guilty. Every single one of us, none of us are without spot. Listen to this Romans chapter 3. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not 
one. That sounds pretty clear. He keeps right on going. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are altogether become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. That's us, friends. We are all under that sin. Adam sinned. We have sinned. And our view of wickedness, Christian, our view of wickedness is directly related to our view of how great our God is. The more we say, oh, it's just a little bitty sin, we take away from our view of God. Sin. Paul wrote that we want to make sin exceedingly sinful. We want to recognize it as sinful. Yes, God is far greater than the total sum of all sin. But the closer we are to God, the more wicked sin becomes. The more wicked our sin becomes. Unfortunately, sin comes at a very high price. It comes at a very high price. Look at verse 17 again of chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. He says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. There is sin, and then there is the sentence. You know, that last phrase there, surely die. It might surprise you, but those words are the same in the Hebrew. The exact same. The exact same. He mentions death twice. I think it's a reference to the spiritual death and the physical death. We'll talk about that here in a moment. But there is the sin, and then there's the sentence that comes with the sin. And as is true for us even today, Adam and Eve were free to make a choice, but they were not free to choose their consequences. They were not free to choose their consequences. And what are these consequences? Many things the Bible tells us about, but the worst of which is death. The worst consequence of sin is death, both spiritual death and physical death. What is spiritual death? It is the separation of the soul from God. What is physical death? It is the separation of our soul from this body. We will all experience that pending the Lord's return. We'll also experience a separation of our soul from the body. And you'll see here that God brought upon, upon them spiritual death immediately. But he allowed the physical death to take its course, to run its course. We are still under the curse of a physical death. But you don't have to be under the curse of a spiritual death. I just want to point out that any interpretation of, of Genesis that allegorizes the historicity of a real Adam undermines the biblical doctrine of sin and our need for a Savior. If there's no Adam, there's no sin, there's no Savior, we are without hope. We need a real Adam as much as we need a real second Adam. In other words, the death, death is the result of sin. Nothing else. Death is the result of sin. Death is not the natural end of life. It is not the natural cessation of life. Death was not a part of the plan. Find me that in the book, in Genesis chapter 1, and they will die. It's not in there. It's not a part of the plan. Sin brought death. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, that's Adam, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of that sin is death. That's not just physical death. That's spiritual death. Separation of the soul from God. I hope that resonates. You see, when Adam sinned, 
practically speaking, he forfeited the peaceful fellowship between him and his wife. And spiritually speaking, he severed the relationship between him and God. And his sin affected all of creation. We still see the results today. Look at verse 21 of chapter 3 of Genesis. The Bible says, Unto Adam also, and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothe them. So the Lord made coats of skin and clothed them. In other words, an animal's life was taken to provide a covering for Adam's sin. An animal's life was taken. That animal didn't do anything wrong. He didn't sin. He didn't eat any forbidden fruit. Adam did. And we'll revisit more of that in a moment. But know this, that the shedding of blood, that shedding of blood from that beginning right there, right outside the garden, continued all throughout the Old Testament. It had to continue all throughout the Old Testament for man to have a relationship with God. He could not come to God without blood. It was not going to happen. And that lack of fellowship caused by the fall of man affected more than our fellowship with God on earth. Adam and every person since now has a spiritual death sentence. You and I, I hope you really truly get a hold of that. We are born spiritually dead. We have a spiritual death sentence. We were born, and if nothing changes in our life, we will die and go to a devil's hell for eternity. That's our sentence. And speaking of this spiritual death, again, the separation of the soul from God, Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, that those who refuse to believe the gospel message, get this now, shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. Everlasting destruction. Friends, that's a forever sentence. I don't think we grasp what forever means. That's forever. Everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. And it's not just for a select few. It's not just for the really bad people of this world. For every single person. We may think, well, I'm just a good person. God says you're all sinned. And without Christ, you have an everlasting sentence awaiting you. Every person. James chapter 1 says, every man is tempted. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. If you have missed the mark in your life, one time, any of us, one time, if you've ever sinned, if you've ever taken something or stole something, made a lie, did not tell the whole truth, one time you missed the mark, even the slightest infraction, your sentence is eternal death. Everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. And if this truth, if this truth upsets you, I truly am sorry. But if it scares you, praise God. Praise God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, Hebrews says. But Proverbs 1.7 says... The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. I know this is not the popular message of the day. I know this is not what preachers want to always preach. But this is the truth of the gospel message. If we don't get a hold of that, everything we do in this life, it's, it means nothing. It means nothing. Christmas means nothing. Your life, your tithes, your attendance, all the things that we do in this church means nothing if we don't get a hold of the truth of the gospel message. It's that 
It's that important. Don't let anything, your pride or, or embarrassment or anything, keep you from eternal life. Trust Christ. Don't take this sentence. God says to, uh, through Ezekiel to the, Israel of, uh, to, the, to the people of Israel there in Ezekiel 31, I think it is, why will you die? Turn to me. Why would you die? I have no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. Why would you die? Turn to me. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Let this scare you into the arms of Jesus. You see, fear keeps us from taking irresponsible risk. Those who've been in high-risk areas, they know this. It keeps you from jumping off a building, for example. I hope. Living this life with sin and the sentence in that it carries, that you know this right now, is an irresponsible risk. It's not even a risk. It's a promise that's going to happen without Christ. You need Jesus. There is a sin. There is a sentence. But praise God, there is a solution. There is a solution. Look at verse 15 of chapter 3. Again, Jesus said, our God writes here, Moses recording, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his head. After God condescends, y'all know the story. They play the name game. Adam says it was Eve. Eve says it was a serpent. God just tolerates, all, kind of winks at it a little bit and gets down to the, the grit of, of what's going on here. And he begins to understand them. But when he gets to Satan... He's not even talking to Adam. He's not even talking to the woman, to Eve. When he gets to the, the devil, he proclaims victory. He proclaims victory. This passage here is to the serpent. Thankfully, Adam and Eve were in earshot of that. Can you imagine? I mean, God comes to Adam. And he's like, he points to her and he knows he's not getting away with it because he knows God's, God knows all. He gets to Eve and he's like, or whatever the serpent was, you know, who knows. And he gets, to, he gets to the serpent, and then he starts proclaiming victory. And think of when he's starting to speak to the serpent, if you're Adam or if you're Eve, you're like, hey, what did he just say? Especially Eve. What did he just say? There's going to be a seed? You know, in verse 16, God promises great sorrow and childbirth for the woman but in verse 15, it is through childbirth that a solution to the problem of sin and death will arrive. Praise God. Notice the personal pronoun, his, in the last part of that verse, his heel. And the owner of that heel will be her seed. Her seed. In other words, a lineage began. A lineage began right there in chapter 3, even before that with Adam. And that lineage is based on the promises and the providence of God in accordance with the faith of man. God continued to use, use his men. The Old Testament, therefore, and a big summarized uh, understanding of the Old Testament is therefore the history of that lineage and God's protection and providence of that promised seed. The whole Old Testament, God dealing with that promised seed. The bloodshed for their coverings was greatly elaborated upon in the Mosaic Law. And for many years, that temporary solution was found in sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice of animals. Some of the sacrifices there in, in the Old Testament by Solomon would just boggle your mind. I mean, 40,000 sheep. All for the glory of God. But it's unique in Psalm 51, I think it is. David writes, I will not sacrifice because you're not, 
You don't want it. You want a broken and a contrite heart. Then I will sacrifice. Because sacrifice never brings us fellowship. It's a temporary solution. And those sacrifices led all the way to the ultimate sacrifice, to the foot of the cross. But the serpent, here in Genesis 3, the devil himself, we know that from Revelation, has continually and persistently tried to prevent the prophetic fulfillment of the promised seed. From Cain killing his own brother to the wickedness of Noah's day and from Egypt enslaving Israel and even Herod slaughtering the infants there in Matthew chapter 2, the devil has given his best efforts to keep the promise from being fulfilled. You know, even today, all throughout even Christianity, he has muddied the waters. He's made Christianity, he's made the Christian religion the most ridiculous thing to wade through. we got to go through it. We don't know what's right. We don't know what's this. We don't know what's that. Just trust the book. This is crystal clear. And I know we have Baptists on the door out there. But it's based off this book. If we lost the board Baptist, who really cares at the end of the day? Now I'm a Baptist by conviction, but because they believe in the book. In the book. Not tradition. Not anything that we can come up. Not laws, uh, not man's ideas, but God's promises. Again, the devil has given his best efforts to keep man away from the truth and keep that promised seed from coming. But God intervenes. God always intervenes. He called a people unto himself in the Old Testament there in Genesis chapter 12. And he blessed them. He blessed them with a set of laws and feasts that continually and persistently pointed them to the solution. And while Satan did his best and still does to point God's people to anything but God, he don't care if they worship him as long as they don't worship God. But God continually intervenes and God to the Old Testament uh, Israel there, he sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet to Israel to help keep them focused on the solution. But the same law, we're giving kind of an Old Testament summary here, but the same law that was meant to point God's people to the solution, the law itself, along with the traditions of men, was elevated to a place of bondage. The Jews got stuck looking at the law and not looking at what the law pointed to. Instead of looking for the solution, they bound themselves to the law. Now turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. You can keep your place there there in Genesis, but it's easy to come back to. Hebrews chapter 10. In retrospect here, the author of Hebrews, uh, and God even inspiring that author, makes it abundantly clear that the law was a guide to prepare a man's heart for the real solution. Remember, the, the, the law is a schoolmaster. So look at verse, verse number 1. Excuse me. The Bible says, For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sin. But in those sacrifices there is remembrance again made of sins every year, because they keep sinning. Verse 4 says, It is impossible, impossible, not possible, that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sin. It was a temporary solution. 
The blood of the animals was a temporary solution. So there was humanity, if you will, guilty of sin, under the sentence of eternal death, both physical and spiritual. The people that God even called unto himself became no different than the world. Friends, the church is getting closer to that today. We see um, many times we see the church is supposed to be here with God, close to God. And we see the world maybe over here, right? And the world drifting from God. Does the church stay here? I don't think so. We keep following the world. You know, we can't be a light into the world if we're filled with the darkness of the world. Oh, yes, we're separate. We're not all in. But we're not here. We need to be here. God's people in the Old Testament became no different than the world. The law just blinded them from the Savior. And then comes the Savior, the real solution, the Savior. Look at Galatians chapter 4. I love preaching about the Savior. I love preaching about Jesus Christ. I have life in Jesus Christ. I have eternal life in Jesus Christ. Look at Galatians chapter 4, verse number 4. The Bible says, when the fullness of time was come... That means the Jews had run to their end, their natural end. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. You see, Israel got stuck in adolescence. They got stuck in a teenage teenage idea of theology, if you will. They couldn't get past it because their view of the law was faulty. And they raised their own traditions to be equal with Scripture and even trumping Scripture in some points. And they were stuck in adolescence. So God, in fullness of time, sent forth His Son under the law, became a Jew, born of a woman, raised in there. When He reached adolescence, He passed it because He's God in the flesh. And He brought Israel, He brought Judaism to its natural conclusion, which is Christianity. The Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 7.14 says, The Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel, meaning, meaning God with us. And a half a century later or so, after uh, Isaiah, the angel meets Joseph there in Matthew 1.21 and tells him that his wife shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Jesus for, his, for he shall save his people from their sins. What a Savior. Take your Bibles, if you will, and go to Romans. A little bit back to the left there. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. God sent His only begotten Son. God became flesh. That happens at Christmas. But look at Romans chapter 5. And I want you to jump down to verse number 17. Romans 5, verse 17. Remember, remember our concept, what we're talking about this morning with Adam and Eve and all the sin that's entered into this world. Verse 17 says, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, all men, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man, sin, uh, one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered 
speaking of the Mosaic law, entered, that the offense might abound, that we would know that we're guilty. But where sin abounded, praise God, grace did much more abound, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, I said all of this this morning to say this. Christmas is about God becoming flesh. It's about God being born into humanity, robing himself in flesh so that he could die as a man. That's the whole point of it. The incarnation of Christ was the doorway to the crucifixion of Christ, which led to the resurrection of Christ and our salvation in Christ. As Romans 5.18 states, the free gift of salvation here is for all men. It is for you and it's for me. It doesn't have to be a Baptist salvation or a Catholic salvation or a Lutheran or a Protestant. It doesn't matter. It's the truth of the gospel. God sent His only begotten Son. He became a man. He took on our sin. He became our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He nailed that sin to the cross and He took our sin, our payment, our everything, and He took it to the grave and He paid the debt and He left it there. And when He came out of that grave, we could have eternal life with a forgiven sin forever. The same forever sentence that we enter this world in, we can have a forever sentence of eternal life in Jesus Christ. And that free gift is for all men. It's for you and for me. We're all born in sin. There's no exception. No, not one. Again, that sin comes with a sentence of death, eternal separation from God. And just, just so we're clear here, eternal separation from God, I know that you know, us big, bad, tough guys every now and then, oh, what's so bad about that? Eternal separation from God. Everything good in your life is from God. Everything. Everything good in your life is from God. And when you're separated from God, all of that goes away. All of it. All of that that has true value will go away because everything that comes from God, come, that, that's good, comes down from the Father of lights. And when you are eternally separated from God, you will have nothing but torment gnashing of teeth and all those things that we rarely talk about anymore in churches. We don't, we don't want to go there. You know, the, the Bible is very clear that hell was made not for man. It was not made for man. It was made for the devil. When he fell, hell was created. It was made for him, not for you. You go there against God's will. And while the whole world today and all its fantasies and feel-good recipes for a fuller life might think that they have the solution, whether it's religion, drugs, or whatever void, whatever, whatever we filling we put in our void that we have, there is only one solution to our sentence of death, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel message. The solution is the cross, His death, His burial, and His resurrection, the Son of God becoming our sin. That's our Savior. That's what Christmas is about. Don't experience another Christmas without knowing that you have eternal life. You, we, should we should celebrate Easter, the true meaning of Easter, as much as we do Christmas. The solution is the cross. But as we began this message, I will have to tell you, even though it's freely available to all, you have to call. You have to call upon the Lord. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. All reservations for eternal life go through the author of life. You don't get there without calling ahead. You must make a reservation. The best Christmas gift 
that you could ever receive is the fulfillment of the best promise ever given, the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive him. Make Christmas meaningful this year. And for us Christians, this Christmas, I hope that we've been reminded of what it is truly about. In all the directions that this season may lead us, may we remember Christ. Remember what he has done for us. Remember the gospel. Remember the cross. Remember the Savior. Let's pray.